First, the thesis of the book of James, just as a reminder, first eight verses. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, jump forward. We'll look at verse 22 forward. This is the text to be preached out of. We'll be principally um, spending our time in the latter part of this section. But verses 21 to 27. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If, any among, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You may be seated. All right, so last time we talked about the perfect law of liberty. What I'd like to do today is to talk about the perfection of that law to some extent, and then we'll be talking about uh, true religion in terms of the duty to care, in terms of mercy ministry. So verse 25 says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. This is the bottom of page 2 of the outline. So, the law of liberty talks about our lives as individuals, how we can live with true liberty before the Lord. Liberty, again, is the ability to do what is good. The ability to do what is good. It's Augustinian liberty. We talked about the fourfold state of man and the fact that before the fall, man was able to do good or evil. After the fall, man could only do evil continuously. That after regeneration, man is able to now do good again, being given saving faith, but still is mixed with sin and is not perfectly righteous in anything that he does. So even, his, even your righteousnesses are still impure before God. They're accepted in Christ because of the work of Christ to pay for our sins and to deal with the imperfections of our obedience. But we are required to have a perfect obedience externally. We are required to know by faith, in other words, knowing from the word of God that a good work is commanded. And we are commanded to also do it with the glory of God in mind as the goal. And to not have any impure motives. 
And so which of your works, when looked upon, can you find that you have without admixture of doubting or without perfectly keeping the focus on God without any admixture of other goal or lesser goal? What good work can you look at and say, yes, this would be acceptable apart from Christ's mediation? My heart obedience and external obedience were perfect. So the law shows us our need of salvation. The perfection and spirituality of the law it touches the whole man and all of life. Shows us our need of salvation. And so at the same time, we talked about the three uses of the law. It's a mirror to show us our need of a Savior, our guilt, and God's holiness. It also is a chain that binds the outward wickedness of men. It restrains evil. And we see that emphasized, for example, in Genesis chapter 9, when God gave the sword to man for vengeance, for the restraining of evil. Before the flood, we see vengeance apart from the magistrate being unjustly given and and non-vengeance, people just doing violence for whatever reason, right? Violence filled the earth. And then we also have the law provides a lamp unto our feet. It shows us the way that we ought to go. It gives us the way of wisdom. And so... When we think about those three uses of the law, we need to remember that the law of God is over the individual, but it's also over the household, it's also over the church, and it's also over the state. And so we consider that liberty in every institution, whether as an individual or as a member of a house or church or state, that liberty is defined by God. And so we have the right always to do what is good. We never have the right to do what is evil. And you have the right to refuse obedience to any unlawful command. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. Now, considering the liberty, we move on to focusing on the perfection. One of the things that we're told is that doers of the work will be blessed in what they do. One of the perfections of the law is the way in which it tells us the good life. It shows us the way we should go. It shows us what works are to be done. Think about this. Verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. What work? What work? The works that are commanded in the perfect law of liberty. Do you want to do works that will give you blessing? That will... Bring blessing on the work itself so that it's established and ongoing and useful. So that it's gold and silver and precious stones as opposed to wood, hay, and straw. Then you apply the law of God and you do works that are commanded by God. We cannot invent good works. Pilgrimages, rosaries, any invention of man is not a good work. It's a superstition. We need the law of God to show us what works are good. So it is a perfect law. It is sufficient for every good work. These are the works commanded in the law. So I want to go go to page 3. I want to talk to you about what the larger catechism has to say about the law of God. It lays out for us principles to observe and understanding the law of God. And the Ten Commandments summarize the law of God. We're The the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that the great commandment is to love God with all of your being. 
And then the second great commandment is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And these two are a summary of all the commandments of God. And then we're told also in Romans 13, Paul shows us that the second table of the law, honor father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, and do not covet. He explains that these are how you love your neighbor. And so he shows us the breakdown, that the law of God is given to us in summary form for heads of doctrine, then in a more detailed but still summary form, and then from there we have all the other commandments can be organized under these commandments. They are buckets, categories, under which to organize the law. And it helps you to understand the law far more quickly. We are given heads of doctrine for the purpose of making it easier for us to learn. And just like with prayer, there is much in the Bible about prayer. But the Lord Jesus Christ gave us the Lord's Prayer as categories of lawful petitions. And you can organize all the petitions of the Bible by the Lord's Prayer. Right, we have in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, a summary of the Gospel. There's explanation in more detail, but that right there is a summary of the Gospel. So we have little sections of the Scripture that are designed to be heads of doctrine to make it easier for us to understand the law and to organize our own thoughts. Now, larger catechism question 99. What rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? For the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed. One, that the law is perfect and binds everyone to full conformity in the whole man unto the righteousness thereof and unto entire obedience forever so as to require the utmost perfection of every duty and to forbid the least degree of every sin. Right? It requires the perfection of every duty, and it forbids the least degree of sin. Now, that perfection, it covers the whole of life, the whole man. And so then, an implication of that is that it also touches the spirit or the mind. Right? Go to point two there. That it is spiritual and so reaches the understanding, will, affections, and all other powers of the soul, as well as words, works, and gestures. So it's not just your external words, right? The Lord holds us accountable for every idle word, every work that we do, all the gestures that we might give, the countenance that we bear, but also the internal operation of the mind. Three, that one and the same thing in diverse respects is required or forbidden in several commandments. So think about this. If you have a property dispute, you are required by the ninth commandment to give true testimony in that dispute. And you're required in the eighth commandment to not give false testimony for the purpose of trying to take somebody's property. You see how those, those two commandments require the same duty. There's, there's different ways in which the law touches on the same action. And in fact, if you meditate on it, you can find a way in which every sin violates every law. And that's what we see in the book of James. We're told that if you're a breaker of one part of the law, you're a breaker of the whole law. Anytime you value something above God, you've broken the first commandment to have no other gods before him. In his sight, you have placed something as more valuable than God, and therefore that is now your God. So every sin involves having a false God. So we see, if we meditate on each of the commandments, we can find that. For that as 
Where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a duty is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. So, there are prom- where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. And where a threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. I'm sure that was super easy to process in audio form. I'm going to run through that just a little bit more. First, this is number four. Where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. So let me give you an example. The commandment to not murder is the commandment to use lawful efforts to preserve life. So when we think about the commandment to not steal, we have the Apostle Paul commanding, steal no longer, and what does he give? He gives a positive command, work with your own hands that you might, and then he goes on, have something to give or share. Right, so the idea of don't steal, work hard to generate wealth and use that wealth with liberality. That's the opposite of stealing. Working to get something and then sharing it with others, you're giving something you have a right to as opposed to taking something you have no right to. Now, where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. I'm sorry, I messed that up. I actually did this in the wrong order. I said, you shall not kill and you shall not steal. Those are, those are forbidden uh, examples. And then you have a positive duty, and I just told you that. But sorry, where a duty is commanded, um, where a duty is commanded, um, we have, for example, like think about the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. Okay, so the commandment to work six days forbids idleness and laziness for those six days. The commandment to keep the Sabbath holy forbids the idea of profaning it. So we have positive commands and there are negative duties. Now, so where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. The fifth commandment promises, for example, that we will if we honor father and mother, live long in the land that the Lord your God gives to you. So when you honor lawful authority, there's a promise of long life. The contrary threat of the idea of shortened life, a curse, is attached to the breaking. Now, that's, those blessings and curses are not always fulfilled providentially in the temporal space. They're, the tendency is that way. That is the general providential arc. However, Sometimes you will see a man who honors father and mother die in just war at a young age. It happens. Right? Something like that can occur. Some sort of vehicle accident. Things like that. Now, how is the promise then fulfilled? Well, it's fulfilled because Christ perfectly keeps the law. And in his perfect keeping of the law, he obtains for us eternal life. So all the blessings are ultimately in a perfect way given to us in Christ. But these are also things that show us the wisdom of how we ought to go and the tendencies of the actions. Where a threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is included. So, for example, where we're told to not take the Lord's name in vain because he won't hold them guiltless who take his name in vain. We also know that those who use his name usefully in a God-glorifying way have a promise that God won't forget it and he's going to reward it. 
All right, point five. That which God forbids is at no time to be done. That's fairly simple to get. If he says don't do it, never do it. Now, what he commands is always our duty. And yet every particular duty is not to be done at all times. Right? It's always our duty to do all the positive commandments. However, because we are finite creatures, we cannot do everything the law commands at every moment. So even the Lord Jesus Christ in his sinless perfection wasn't doing every positive command at every moment. He was doing one or a few positive commands at a time and doing them at the proper time. Right? He was properly prioritizing. So, for example, right now, you were heeding the call to assemble for public worship. You were not doing your ordinary dominion work of getting the daily bread by the sweat of your brow. Those are contradictory duties, and the reason the law of God does not contradict itself is because it gives you a time setting to do them. It says, at this time, do this. At that time, do that. And so, for example, the fourth commandment tells us how to order our time. So we know that there are different priorities and different duties to be done at different times. So we always have a duty to obey the law, but we can't perform every positive command at every moment. And that's not because of our sinfulness. That's because of the very nature of our finitude as creatures. So there we can look at the law and we can wisely choose. Right? I, I often, because of my own foolishness, feel overloaded and don't know, you know, I've got too many things to do, too many duties to do, whatever. If I were wiser, I would not feel overloaded. I would choose rightly which thing to do when, one after the other. And so when we are overwhelmed, we should pray and look to God knowing that he provides, he cares for us, he upholds us. So we should go before him, go to the throne of grace, in the name of Christ, and what we should do is ask for him to give us peace and ask for him to give us wisdom to know which good work to do. And then you apply the law of God and go do one of the good works. Now, six, that under one sin or duty, all of the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with all the causes, means, occasions, and appearances thereof, and provocations thereunto. All right, so when, when the commandment, the seventh commandment comes up and it says you shall not commit adultery, it forbids all of the pleasures of the flesh sinfully used. So that would include a sort of wasteful gaming, pleasure-seeking, gluttony, all sexual sins, right? It also has a positive command for the right use of those things, to eat properly, to, to uh, be able to use lawful recreations. It commands for the holiness of the marriage bed and its proper use. Right? These are all positive elements. So under, the, under one sin or duty, all the same kind are forbidden or commanded, together with the causes. Right? So the things that could be used to bring that about, not just that could be, but the things that, are, that, are, that cause that to come about, in other words, tempting. The, the means, so making means of the flesh, putting things together in such a way as to be able to accomplish sin. Occasions, things that are that are likely to result in some sort of a sin. But we have in the book of Proverbs, for example, don't walk by the harlot's house. 
right? You, you avoid the harlot's house so that you are avoiding her siren call. At the same time, however, we're told that she appears in the marketplaces, on the street corners and all that. So if you're going to go do trade, you're likely to possibly run into this. Does that mean you don't trade? You just stay inside and die until you starve? And no. What you do is you realize you have to do duties, and sometimes you're going to run into temptations. You don't look for temptation. You don't go by temptation unnecessarily. You do your duties seeking to minimize temptation, and when it comes, you overcome it. You subdue it. You crush it underfoot. You kill it. Now, the appearance of sin is also forbidden. If you just do things that look like you're sinning and don't provide explanation, don't clear it up, what you're doing is you're creating a stumbling block, you're undermining your testimony, you're encouraging other people to sin. So you should consider carefully when you're in conflict, for example, and somebody rebukes you for something, if you, could, if you hear their rebuke and you go, you know, I wasn't sinning in that, but I understand how I gave the appearance of sin in that, that part at least you can apologize for. You can recognize that failing. And provoking people to sin. If you know somebody's got a, a trigger to anger, you know, being careful to not use that trigger to try to provoke them to it. If you know somebody has a weakness for some other particular type of sin, uh, some sort of time-wasting thing or whatever, it's, it's easy to provoke to that. You, you be careful. So those are, um, those are the examples. Seven. What is forbidden, sorry, that what is forbidden or commanded to ourselves, we are bound according to our places to endeavor that it may be avoided or performed by others according to the duty of their places. As if you realize you're a dad and you go, I have to, you know, wash my wife in the word and I need to uh, raise up my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and you have another friend who's a dad, you encourage him to do the same things. You encourage him to do the duties that he's got. You have a duty to do it, make sure you're encouraging your brothers to do it too. Right, so this idea of a mutual edifying and a mutual encouragement in righteousness. Eight, that in what is commanded to others, we are bound according to our places and callings to be helpful to them and to take heed of partaking with others in what is forbidden to them. So, you know, you're with somebody's child, right, you're engaging with them in some sort of a godly thing, and you realize, wait, I remember that this person who is the son of this other person, they've been told to go do this thing right now. Even though what we're doing right now is good, they have a duty to go do this other thing. Okay, don't encourage them to disregard that command. Don't encourage them in the sin. Instead, encourage them to go do their other duty. So be careful about that. Don't participate knowingly in helping somebody else to sin and avoid a duty. Even if the activity itself is lawful, you want to be careful about helping other people to do what their duties are. So that right there, I think, is a, an excellent section of the larger catechism that helps us to understand the idea of the perfection of the law. When you, when you understand that the commandments of God are given in such a way as to be read like that, it becomes obvious that the principles of the law are far-reaching and that the principles of the law are sufficient to cover the whole of life. There is not one inch of territory missing. There is no place where the banner of Christ should not be raised. Every thought is to be brought captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. And understanding that we use necessary inference using these types of understanding of the perfection of the law helps us to be able to do that. Now, 
verse 26. And by the way, there's a number of excellent proof texts that are attached. I have them at the bottom of that page. So if you want to go and test those principles with the scriptures, there are the proof texts at the bottom of that page that you can go and consider if those principles are lawful or not. I think you'll find those proof texts to be eye-opening. Verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So remember, what is this word for religious? If anyone thinks he's religious, it's threskia. This is an external profession or service. Right? Religion is a, a rule of practice and of doctrine. Religion is a rule of practice and doctrine. It's very popular right now to say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, or avoid religion, pursue Jesus. Well, Jesus was very religious, so if you're going to pursue Jesus, you're going to be religious. If you're spiritual and you're not insane, across time you're going to come up with doctrines that are a rule to believe. And you're going to come up with practices that are a rule to obey. The danger is not religion. The danger is false religion. The danger is false religion. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they were too religious. They weren't religious enough. Your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees if you want to be saved. Religion is a rule of faith and practice. Our Bible, the Bible, is the rule of faith and practice. And it is totally acceptable, and in fact, our obligation to organize and systematize and write down in summary form what we understand the scriptures to say and command. And so we should capture those things, and we should judge those standards by the only authority, and the only authority is the word of God which contains that perfect law of liberty. We are free from the doctrines and commandments of men. But the doctrines and commandments of God are binding upon you. So that's the religion that we should have. We should have the religion of the Bible. If you think yourself to be religious, one of the rules of our religion is to bridle your tongue. One of the rules of our religion is to bridle your tongue. Don't say useless things. Don't say fruitless things. Don't give off idle words. Be thoughtful in what it is that you are saying. The little things of life that are idle words are things that ought to be cataloged. And I mentioned this before, but I want to encourage you to think about it. How do you greet people? How do you send people on their way? What are the things that you say when you're pausing to think? Do you say things like luckily or fortunately as opposed to providentially or thankfully or is it unluckily and unfortunately as opposed to regrettably or sadly? What do these things mean? What are these words? Those are little things, but how about the big things? The big things of slander, false doctrine, not being careful to consider your approvals. When you say amen to a prayer, is that prayer a prayer you've examined to see if it is Something you can actually say in faith. Does it follow the rules of prayer given to us in Scripture? So the idea of the bridling of the tongue, being careful what you say, 
Now, if you don't bridle the tongue, your religion is useless. Speaking foolishly is a sign that you have failed to be free from self-deception. Right? You, you are speaking foolishly because you are thinking foolishly. You should stop and think. When you find yourself pouring out vile words, pouring out harmful speech, cursing unjustly, right? these, these things, you should examine yourself and consider if you are in the faith. Do you believe the gospel? Is the gospel that's in your mind that you think is true, is it the same as what the scriptures teach? Search the scriptures. Compare what you think the gospel is to what the scriptures say the gospel is. And again, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11, a great outline to test the parts. How do I understand the death of Christ? How do I understand what his resurrection is? Now, pure and undefiled religion, in contrast to that useless religion, a useless religion is impure, it is defiled. Useful religion is pure and undefiled. It's defined by God and His Word. It's useful. Useful in what sense? Well, it glorifies God and it brings blessing to other people. It even brings blessing to those people who seem to have no temporal power to bless us, which is why it goes to orphans and widows. Pure and undefiled religion is actions that give your time and resources to the fatherless and the woman without a male covenant protector in time of trouble. Pure and undefiled religion is to resist the temptation of temporal gain and to do one's duty even at cost of temporal gain. Pure and undefiled religion is to maintain holiness from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So then we have an example that's given. Do you think that this example is the only thing that's necessary for pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father? No. There are many things that are commanded in the scriptures. This is given as a synecdoche. A synecdoche is a figure of speech where a part is used to represent the whole. And so what we have here is one particular duty. And the reason this particular duty is pointed out is because James deals with partiality and impartiality. We're going to see that in the beginning of chapter 2. He's going to go into the idea of impartiality. So he deals with the poor man there. Right here he deals with the orphan and the widow. And he contrasts the poor man with the rich man. So we have that at the beginning of chapter 2. Okay, in verses 1 through 13, we're going to see that. Now, mercy ministry is an important part of religion. And it's contrasted with, in the later parts of James, when James starts to deal with the idea of a confession of faith that has no works with it, he also has a prayer that has no works with it. And so the idea here is that if you have a confession, you ought to also have works that are also according to the rule of faith. The religion ought to include rules of the doctrine you speak and rules of behavior. So that religion includes mercy ministry. And so the idea of being, you know, saying be blessed, be warmed and filled, but not giving any sort of material help is the example that gets gone into later on in James chapter 2. So here's the positive laying out of mercy ministry duty to orphans, which is literally the fatherless and the widow. So I want to lay out for you sort of a a doctrine here of of mercy ministry 
Um, and what I want to do is I want to give you um, a couple of key things. So go to, uh, go to page 7. Page 7 is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's the chapter 26 of the Communion of the Saints. Again, there are lots of proof texts here that I would encourage you to spend time to study, to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Section 1. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And be united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. So notice this. Our union with Christ is the basis for our communion with each other. Our union with Christ is the basis for our communion with each other. We are united to Jesus Christ, our covenant head. He has paid for our sins. We have a fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Right? His suffering and death by our, communion, with our, by our union with him in that, his sufferings and death are counted as though they were ours. They're imputed to us so that we are counted as innocent. Now, we I call his graces, even though he was not a recipient of grace, he was a recipient of merited favor, right? He perfectly obeyed the law and has God's favor, not out of mercy. But we use the word graces there in a broad way to refer to the, the things that are given to him in his human condition. His perfect obedience is something we have fellowship in. We have fellowship in it so that we are counted as righteous because his obedience is imputed to us so that we are counted as keepers of the law. That union with Christ. His resurrection is not a basis of our justification. His resurrection is one of the blessings, one of the benefits, one of the good things given because of the justification. We have a resurrection as a part of the fruits that he earned. And our glorified state is something we get because of what he earned. So that being rooted there, that we are united to Christ, we therefore are united to one another in love. We have communion in each other's gifts and graces. That means there's a way in which we are duty-bound to use these things for each other's good. We are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. And so we have to care for each other in, in our terms of our inward man, care about doctrine for each other, our beliefs. We, we care about what we believe and helping to comfort each other in weakness. And then also we have to care about the outward man, what is needful for the well-being of the body. Now, section two, saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God. We are to work together to worship God together. And in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. That includes in the private life. So you should be fellowshipping together, talking about the things of God, encouraging each other to duties. And I've given to you, uh, page 8 is from the Directory of Family Worship. It talks about the idea of mutual edification, gives examples of times. Okay, My hope is that you can look at that on your own time, and you will see opportunities to think about how to help to edify each other. We're also called upon to relieve each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. Which communion, as God offers opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place 
call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, right? So not just in our local church, but also in the church throughout the world. Section 3. This communion, which the saints have with Christ, does not make them in any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead. There's an Eastern Orthodox heresy called theosis that teaches in the process of salvation we take on the nature or attributes of God by a process of transformation. That is false. That is a heresy. That is one of the great dangers of Eastern Orthodoxy. And so if you want to learn more about that, I'm happy to talk to you about it. The way in which we do take on uh, the attributes of God is not by having them become our attributes. We understand them. We know them. We believe them. And so we participate in the divine essence by faith, not by taking the attributes and replacing our human attributes with divine attributes, which is nonsense. The creature cannot become the creator and cannot take on the incommunicable attributes of the creator. It does not make them any wise partakers of the substance of his, of his Godhead or to be equal with Christ in any respect. Right? We, are, we are not the eldest son. We are not the first fruits. We are, we are to recognize Christ even in his humanity as having a higher office and in his divinity he of course is above us either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous. Nor does their communion, one with another, as saints, take away or infringe the title of property, the title or property which each man has in his goods and possessions. Right. So the, the communion of the saints is not the communism of the saints. The communion of the saints is not the communism of the saints. It is the sharing together in the gifts and graces without eliminating all of the property laws of the scriptures. So my gifts... Graces, time, and property are mine and not yours. Unless you're my wife. But we do have duties to each other to share in these things. Now, jump back to page four. In mercy ministry, who are the people that should receive mercy ministry well, in a certain sense, in terms of private mercy ministry, we should all be merciful to each other. We should all forgive each other, and we should all be seeking to help each other and to extend out our strengths to help each other's weaknesses. But when we think about, uh, for example, the public ministry of the church for mercy ministry, there are those who are able but temporarily troubled. Those could be in small burdens or large burdens. There are those who are unable to provide, but they are willing, and they're doing what they're able to mitigate burdens. And so they might receive some sort of ongoing help until they get to a place where they are able to provide. And those who are permanently unable to provide, but they do what they can to mitigate the burden. Okay, so there's those categories. So those are the types of people that should be receiving help. So you have the able but temporarily troubled. So imagine you have, for example, an able-bodied man, and he's doing work and he's providing for his family and all of a sudden some sort of persecution comes or some sort of you know calamity comes there's an earthquake there's a whatever you know whatever the thing is there's whether it's natural disaster or coming from harm from others we give mercy ministry to help and distress it's appropriate to help there to avoid the trouble from worsening to help a brother from falling into debt or to help a brother from having great loss of all of his life's work or things like that those who are unable to provide but are willing, you could, you could imagine, so for example, somebody's you know, working a job full-time, they're not making enough, they've got a wife and children, they're not able to pay for all of the bills, or, or whatever. Right? That, that type of a situation, you have kind of the working poor. So here's somebody who, who is working, they're trying, uh, but they're not able to provide enough. And so 
that uh, idea of helping them in that time while you're helping to get them to a place where they can provide. Um, the, those that are permanently unable to provide would be those who are disabled in some way. And then you have the orphan and the widow given as examples. And those are because of the fact that if the, orphan has, if the widow has children, the expectation is that she's supposed to educate and care for those children. And so rather than not providing any help and trying to just require her to you know, be left alone, there is this idea of helping to make sure that she can care for the children because they are more valuable than the property that's being given to help her. So what are the means of help? First of all, we're supposed to try to help ourselves. Right? We look to God to give us strength and to give us effectiveness in our work. So we should work and we should seek to save and invest. By having savings and investment, it makes it so that you can handle instabilities. Right? If every little trouble in life makes it so that you can't deal with it by your own resources, you need to be saving and you need to be investing. I would encourage all of you, if you don't have it already, to have one to three months of an emergency fund of cash just sitting in a checking account. That's available. It's not so much that you are in a place where that's going to be inflated away, but it is something where you are able to deal with the ups and downs of things and have something that's liquid to be able to support your duties. Investing, taking everything you can that's not for necessary duty and not some sort of requirement like the tithe or a situation where there's some liberality that you need to do, taking everything you can that's not being enjoyed for the blessing of God in a responsible way and putting it into being able to make more money. Right, the Proverbs 31 woman is told, uh, it, we're said of her that she, by the profits of her own hands, she bought a vineyard. Right? She bought capital goods. What did she do? She, she took flax and wool and she puts it together. Right, this idea there that men and women together work in the estate building process to help each other to have resources to use for their household and to be able to give an inheritance to their children and children's children, and to be able to be a help to other people, to have something to give, and to be able to deal with their own needs. The Proverbs 31 woman, she laughs at the winter because she's provided well for her home. She's not concerned about the things that would come. She has been able to prepare. So, she also trusts God. Secondly, the family is a backup so when the individual is unable to provide or when a household that has gone out, for example, if you're you know, a father and you have a child who has a separate house, uh, the, that father's house should be sort of a backup point to be able to go to for help. Uh, a brother's house should be able to be a backup point to be able to go to. The principle of giving a double inheritance, a double portion of the inheritance to the oldest son is about that idea. You look at the Old Testament, the purpose of that is so that that oldest son took on the responsibility of making sure the, the women of the family had a protector and making sure that there was a place to go to for retreat, for support with the family wealth so that the private means could be used to support when possible. Private liberality, being able to give to each other with generosity. So, third, the church provides from tithes and from free will offerings. And there are types of giving. There's charity loans, which is a loan without interest. We are forbidden in the scriptures from charging interest on charity loans. So charity loans can be given from person to person, but they can also be given from the church as a type of diaconal help, a loan without interest. If somebody gets into trouble and their help, it's one thing. If it starts to become repeated or large, then the deacons should spend extra time really specially coming in and helping to make sure that everything's in good order. Um, some of the things that a charity loan might be used for. 
if a brother has essentially been sold into slavery, in our time that takes the form of taking on absurd you know, debts, having some sort of large interest debts, things like that. Uh, you're in sort of a slavery position, helping to buy brothers out of slavery, um, helping with calamities that have come that they think they can repay later, uh, getting a brother on his feet to avoid falling into slavery. is in a downward spiral, but he's trying to work and he doesn't know how to get out of it. So the other thing, the other principle here is we don't want to tie somebody up into giving all of their extra resources into paying that down for longer than six years. The principle that a person shouldn't be enslaved for more than six years for debts or property crimes in the Old Covenant provides us with a principle of equity to help us to know the maximum amount of time of that burden that should be placed on somebody. Now, page five. There are grants or one-off gifts of money that are given in love. Again, if large or repeated, there should be an increased scrutiny from deacons and help with the discipleship for the management of the estate. The same sorts of uses are kind of open there. And then the last category is the category of ongoing support. This requires that a person have some substantial qualifications. Um, so we'll go into that in just a second. But one other thing is, I want to remind you, you don't have a duty to help everybody. You don't have a duty to help everybody in your family. And you don't have a duty to help everybody who is in the church. Here's what I mean by that. First of all, if you think a person is being unwise with their money, and they're unwilling to talk to you about what to do with the money, then you shouldn't give them your money personally. They're unwilling to be discipled by you or whatever. Okay, fine. As far as the family goes, if you have somebody in the family who is not repentant, not willing to be under discipleship, not being willing to, to, to work with you for their own growth in the faith and in uh, the use of their material goods for stewardship, you should not give them out of the family purse. And the church, also, the same thing. So there's this idea of persons being in good standing, right? which is why it is generally foolish to go around giving money to people who you randomly meet. If you give anything, it's your duty to give it in the name of Christ. Give it a cool cup of water. It's your duty to give it in the name of Christ. And that's because you don't want to get the glory for yourself. It's not because you're a swell guy. You're not a swell guy. You are corrupt in all your parts. You know who's a swell guy? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's who's a swell guy. And so you give it in the name of Christ so that he gets the glory, so he gets the honor, and so that the testimony of the doctrine that you give out is also there. So every time you give something out, you need to give the gospel, you need to give it in the name of Christ, give something, you know, carry shorter catechisms in your pocket. Give those out. Now, if the person, if you have any time, you have any ability, you, you try to point to the idea of what's a long-term solution. Those little band-aid fixes are not good. And the government as the solver of the problems is also evil. What we want to do is we want to use the diaconal ministry of the church to disciple people who are in need. So that we can tell them, be blessed, be warmed, and be filled. And if you want to come be discipled under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can give those things to you now. Somebody comes, they take it, they take it, they defraud the diaconal ministry by just trying to take something short term. Great, they come back the second time. You need to call them to repentance, require them to take actions of repentance. Right? You, you do that. You go through that. That's hard. It takes time. It takes resources. It's burdensome. But we are commanded to do that. And it's hard and burdensome compared to just 
handing things to people without any sort of connection or teaching. But that start, that's just useless. That's uselessly throwing away small amounts of resources. Don't do that. If it's worth putting the risk in, put the risk in. If it's not worth putting the risk in, don't. So we are called to be good stewards of the property that we've been given. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 3, page 6. I'm going to encourage you to read through this on your own. I'm going to point out a couple of key things here. First of all, this deals with widows who are really widows. And it says to honor them. The context makes it clear that the honoring is a giving of money. So widows that are really widows, that have no family to support them, and that are older, these widows should be put on the dole. They should be put on a long-term recurring payment their qualifications there. It's not every widow. It's not every widow who's over 60. It's widows who are over 60 who meet the qualifications. Those are qualification sets just like qualifications for civil magistrates, just like qualifications for church officers. We have a list of qualifications. Those qualifications need to be met. The Bible is hard. It's hard on bad stewardship, it's hard on people who do not meet qualifications. And that's because it's part of the law. The law is hard. In fact, it's so demanding that it requires perfection in all of your parts. It is the perfect law of liberty. And we should be thankful that we have a perfect Savior who's provided for all of our breakings of that law. At the same time, there's a mercy ministry here. And this doesn't require a woman to be perfect in order to get this ongoing support. It doesn't require a disabled man to be perfect to get ongoing support. It doesn't require the children who need support to be perfect in order to get the support. But for a woman who's going to be in a prolonged way on this, it sets that out. Now, verse 11 talks about younger widows. And you know the way that younger widows and orphans should be generally dealt with is by encouraging marriage to godly men. So then there's dangers that are warned about in terms of the way in which if you put a younger woman on the dole, the way that that turns into a danger for certain sin types. And then it goes into verse 17, and it says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. The context there is in comparison to the single honor of a widow. The idea there is that you should be careful to reward elders who serve well. And so that also sounds hard. You go, wow, give a dollar to the widow and give two dollars to the elder who rules well. Sounds like a clergyman wrote this. Well, he did, but he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Why? Why is that there? Because the church doesn't exist principally as a social action society. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The word of God is to be preached in the church. The worship of God is to be upheld in the church. And government and discipline of the wicked out of the church is to be upheld by the church. The church exists for doctrine, worship, and government. And mercy ministry is a backstop to prevent the destruction of the saints and to make sure that they do not perish in the earth. It's not the principal purpose. If your concern is that the church doesn't do enough social action, that's your fault. Guess who's supposed to be liberal and generous? The individual. What's the church supposed to do? The church is supposed to teach doctrine, worship, and have government 
to maintain order and discipline in the church. That's the principal action. Which is why we're told that households are supposed to, households are supposed to make sure to care for their own. Now, at the same time, if we turn away from those who are in need, we have sinned horrifically. We are covenanted and bound. It is our duty to provide in need for our brothers. And we need to look for lawful opportunities to do that and to not shame, to not make feel bad, to not in any way make somebody who is doing their lawful duties but has calamity come upon them feel as though there is something wrong about receiving help. It is to be an honor. It is an honor for us. It's an honor for them. And what it is, is a working together in the communion of the saints to the glory of God. Both things are important to be balanced. They not be ashamed to receive help and that we not be careful to just throw out money and make it so that we can't properly order the church for doctrine, worship, and government. These are the things that we have to deal with. The proper purpose of the church and mercy ministry in its proper place. And so, if we have the ability to perform the basic duties of doctrine, worship, government, we can support officers, we go, then what we need to do is we also need to be careful that we are providing in mercy ministry where there is opportunity. So you have all that laid out. This is the communion of the saints. This is the proper order. We are to use the communion of the saints to materially bless and spiritually bless. These things are good works. They're commanded of us. There's a blessing attendant with them. And when we have opportunity to bless others who have a duty in their own house and there's some calamity that's befallen them, then we participate in the blessing of that good work. When we have resources that go to the public teaching and worship and government, we participate in the blessings that are attendant to that good work. And so we work together and we have a communion together in blessings. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights?